Hi, friends. It is really nice to be back in your ears for another episode of Candid Conversations, a podcast by Eating Disorders Victoria. My name is Bree, and today I'm very happy to welcome a special guest to the podcast. We have our CEO, Belinda Cordwell, joining me for what I think is a very candid conversation. It's not often that CEOs are as warm and as open as someone like Belinda is, and I really feel like the term candid conversation is the perfect descriptor for her and her leadership style. She is someone who, since day dot at EDV, has always had an open door and really brings such authenticity to her leadership. Uh, She does have lived experience of being the mother of someone with an eating disorder. And it's this passion and this desire to see the system improve for other families and other individuals that drives her work and really that drives the entire organization. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Belinda and you learn a little bit more about the behind the scenes of an organization like EDV. So thank you, Belinda, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us for this conversation today. Can you start by giving listeners um, a bit of an insight as to how you ended up here as the CEO of EDV? Well, I my journey really probably started in eating disorders in um, in 2011 uh, when my daughter developed anorexia nervosa as a um, 15 going on 16 year old. Um, I was at the time employed as a CEO of another not-for-profit organisation which um, which over that next 12 months after her diagnosis um, I tried to keep that role going. I ended up choosing to resign from that role um, in order to be able to provide um, the the care that Lucy needed, but more more the flexibility that she needed in terms of being able to scale up work and scale down work. Professionally, I have been working um, predominantly in health policy and health change management in a whole range of different settings. Um, So almost on diagnosis with my daughter, Lucy, I had two narratives going on in my head. I had the devastated parent that was just going, oh, my God, this has appeared out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere for us. Um, And, you know, I was grieving and I was frightened and I was always all those things that you are as a parent, but there was a little voice that was still floating over the top already going, how could this journey have looked differently for being different um, from you know, the fact that our GP didn't take my concern seriously early in the piece through to, you know, um, what what were some warning signs I might have seen a bit earlier uh, in the case of Lucy. And that sort of continued on through. One of the key things for success for our family really was the ability to connect with other families that were going through the same thing or had gone through the same thing and were a little bit further ahead and I lent on a couple of families in particular um, who made their mobile phone numbers readily available to me and I was just able to reach out whenever I was feeling stuck and um, get advice and that was just invaluable and I totally credit that with um, uh, enabling us as a family to support Lucy through to um, uh, a robust recovery, which is where she is now. Um, I think so. Then, I, from there, I started working at um, the Victorian Centre of Excellence in Eating Disorders. Um, 
as a role um, both as a care consultant and project manager doing some early intervention projects there and then about four years ago um, the role of CEO of EDV popped up. I had been saying to myself I was not particularly keen on being an, a CEO again um, in my professional life unless it was for an eating disorder organisation so I got the opportunity to combine the two um, the two passions I guess um, so yeah so that's how I kind of ended up here at EDV four years ago. I really do feel like the stars um, aligned for you to join EDV at the time that you did Belinda and look you've been hit with some real challenges since you started you know obviously the pandemic and the impact that that had on eating disorders was enormous, but, you know, there's a genuine, I guess, momentum in the sector at the moment that's really driving a lot of reform and a lot of change, um, which is really exciting. And it's really exciting for an organisation like EDV to be really at the centre of a lot of that, which we will, I guess, talk about as part of this conversation. But I guess to set the scene for our listeners, I think it's important for people to really understand what an organisation like EDV actually is and what we do. I think maybe from the outside, people might have some assumptions about EDV and be about our size and our resourcing and our ability to do certain things. But, you know, when you peek behind the curtain, we actually tend to run off the smell of an oily rag. We say that a lot at EDV, um, which, yeah, can have its real challenges. So, do you want to explain to our listeners, yeah, a little bit more about, you know, what the organisation really looks like and what you see as our role in the sector? Yeah, so I think um, as you reflected, it's been a really interesting four years and what EDV looked like when I arrived here on my first day and what EDV looks like now are quite, um, uh, are quite different um, entities really in many ways. Um, we so the structure uh, we've grown significantly. So we've since that point we've tripled um, in size. So we're a lot bigger than I think people used to think we were big, and we were much smaller. Yes, but we are bigger now um, than we were back then. Um, but I think the smell of the oily rag, but um, tension that it creates within ADV is that. Most of that growth has come from investment from the state government um, to meet demand in, during COVID. Uh, we had massive increase in demand very rapidly. We had quick investment from the government, for which we will be very grateful on behalf of our community during that period. Um, but all of that, every last dollar that goes, and you, know, you have seen, Bree, in our meeting, um, you know, we're, we are eking out every last bit of that that we can get into frontline service delivery as much as possible. That's our, um, ha that has been our focus, and we've tended to prioritise that at times over some of those other nice-to-have things that you can have within an organisation. So, um, you know, the size these days, um, the, is it approximately an EFT of about 28? We have a highly... Do you want to, sorry, just explain what EFT means? Oh, so <laughs> full-time equivalent, um, you know, as a number crunching um, about, but that doesn't mean we have 28 staff. We actually have 60 staff, but many of those, about 20 of those staff are our casual peer mentors and paid support group facilitators, which people would be familiar with. Um, uh 
And then, um, yeah, so there's about 60 paid staff members on the team. We have an, another pool of approximately 40 volunteers. So there are, and, you know, we're incredibly grateful for the um, the resourcing and um, the commitment that our volunteers provide to us that amplifies what we're able to provide to our community significantly. Um, yeah, so that is that. Yeah, I think that paints a picture for people. So we're about the equivalent of 28 full-time staff with also an amazing contingent of volunteers. We wouldn't be able to do what we do without our volunteer team. Um, you know, I think when I started at EDV sort of five years ago, we might have had maybe 12 staff. So it really has been um, a big, I guess, growth period over the last few years. And it's been really amazing to see the diversification of EDV's service delivery and all the things that we're now able to offer the community. Um, yeah, so I guess back to that point of where do you see, I guess, EDV sitting in the sector? Because I think that's probably changed a lot since you started as well. Yeah, look, I think um, I think a couple of things changed. You know, I often liken that time when I started to really um, there were things that we could improve on what we were doing. So at that point, we were offering our hub helpline, which has remained a key um, offering that uh, we offer our community. Um, we had um, uh, some face-to-face -face support groups. We had um, education. Um, we were going out to you know schools and the community around education. We were doing advocacy. Um, you know, and there were things that were opportunities that I could see. We also had our peer mentoring program, which was a, a key feature already at that point um, and has remained so. Um, but I think, you know, I, I liken that time to sort of was heading up a mountain. There were a few clouds on the horizon, things that opportunity, the odd pothole in the road, but, you know, it was quite a nice drive. Um, and then we came around that corner and we just got hit by the truck that was COVID. Um, and even apart from practical challenges like suddenly morphing the whole team into remote and, you know, we're incredibly proud to say we did not stop or not offer one single service as a result of that rapid transition to remote. So, And um, why we say that when we, were, <laughs> when we went into lockdown, we had been a purely office-based organisation forever. <laughs> Most yeah. people didn't even have laptops. We were like, no. yeah. you know, your old PC on your desk. Um, yeah. We, we had done a bit of a digital. Fortunately, the board had had the foresight in 2019 to say they need to do a digital strategy. So we we had started the process. We just morphed across into Office 365. We had made a decision to invest in a um, Salesforce CRM. Um, so we, we 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 had the beginnings of it, but nobody was used to using it. No, we left the day we closed the office. We left a pigeonhole system next to one of our walls, which was our entire process for managing invoicing or communication between staff members, where you put a little note in your pigeon hole. So that's where definitely where we were pre-COVID and it was a very rapid deployment of everybody into home online and, you know, an extraordinary commitment by staff at that point to grapple both with the heightened need that was coming through. Almost instantaneously we had a really big uptick on our help the hub helpline. Um, uh, so, yeah, so that's where we were. Then, yeah, COVID hit. And I think what COVID did, we have been seeing an increase in eating disorders. I think it's the, the numbers are about 11% in the 10 years 
prior to COVID. So there had already been, as I said, some potholes and some grey clouds on the horizon around an increase in eating disorders in our community and and maybe we weren't addressing that as um, meaningfully as we could. Um, so I think the combination of the rapid increase in demand and particularly it was increasing numbers, but it was increasing acuity. So um, the calls that we were taking were from much more distressed uh, people than we had been seeing necessarily before. Um, all of our system, semi shut down, waiting lists went out of control. Um, and, you know, so the state government turned around and went, okay, rapid buckets of money. Here's, you no, know, I remember the first bucket of money we got coming out of COVID. Um, I had no heads up that we were going to get it. There was a, an announcement on Easter Sunday in a media release and somebody saw our name mentioned in the media release. Um, and so I think that Easter that year, somebody will correct me, but it felt like it was mid-April, mid to late April. Um, and, you know, we had to stand up that program, which was for our, which was for specifically for online counselling and online support groups. We had to stand that up um, by 1 July. So really rapid, eight-week. We had to find, recruit, advertise, recruit, have someone in place and start. And again, really proud by, I think, July 10th, that person was delivering a full telehealth counselling service and we had the online support groups up and running. So shout um, out to Amy Woods. Yeah, <laughs> shout out to Amy Woods. She, she, um, yeah, she was a bit of an angel and exactly the right person at the right time on that program. Um, yeah, so that, you know, and then, you know, we got another investment in the November for our care coaching program, which was, you know, very targeted at the demand that we were seeing in for families of newly diagnosed young people and not being able to get into the treatment services. So how could we hold them um, during that space and try to support them to get off to a good start in um, their caring role? Obviously, that was a program very close to my heart, given my own uh, lived experience, but... Um, uh, so that was a, a real joy in some ways to start that program and those voices that were going in my head 10 years prior about how we could make this better for families and carers were, um, it was a real privilege to get to deploy that. Um, and then, you know, we just kept getting more money for our telehealth nurses, more money for the hub, you know, that we had some changes to the hub. Uh, there's huge demand meant that had been a purely volunteer run um, service before. Um, but now it was um, we had a paid manager to man or coordinator to manage that um, service. So yeah, so we had lots of lots and lots and lots of online recruitment. <laughs> I didn't, didn't do a face to face uh, interview of anybody for um, or onboarding uh, for probably eighteen months, I reckon. Um, so yeah, so it was a re it's been a really really interesting time, and I think what has happened we haven't lost. That investment, um, you may have seen some media about um, our challenge has been that that investment has remained a little static for the last couple of years and so therefore it's not keeping up with the significant increase in CPI costs. So we, we are, it isn't effectively a, a loss year on year at the moment, but we have retained that COVID uplift funding for those specific services. And I think the reason we have been able to do that is because that crisis actually just amplified what was already emerging pre-COVID and um, those services had just become rapidly core services that our community needs, not 
nice to have in the middle of a COVID pandemic. Yeah, so true, Belinda. I feel like, um, you know, we talk about this, but eating disorders have been historically under-invested in, particularly in the community services kind of space where EDV sits. So what COVID did for us in a sort of silver lining way was enable more investment into the system. And what we're saying now is, you know, that investment shouldn't be this, you know, one-off for the pandemic. But like you say, these services have become core business. It's what the community needs. The demand is still still there and we want to keep running them. Um, and we don't want to have to, I guess, continue to run them on these 12-month blocks of funding, which um, could at some point disappear. Um, Belinda, did you want to shed some light on the most recent state budget announcement? It came out um, last week for anyone who sort of keeps up with those things. What did the uh, state budget include for EDV and for eating disorders more broadly? Yeah, so um, sort of probably as I alluded to before, we uh, we received um, uh, a similar amount with a very small CPI increase um, to what we had received last year uh, to deliver the range of services that we have been delivering over the last couple of years. Um, so that was announced uh, on the day and it was announced for another 12 months. Um, and we'll talk about this in a second, but it, that is in the context that the reason for that 12-month um, extension rather than more of a multi-year funding arrangement um, really is sitting within the context of the launch of the Victorian Eating Disorder Strategy in August, which we do hope will inform future investment um, decisions. Um, and the in the broader sector, there wasn't a huge amount of investment, probably for the same reason. The, the main additional um, investment was an announcement around operational funding for our first ever Victorian residential uh, treatment service, which is... The building is about to commence on that. We've been working quite closely. Alfred Health um, are running um, that uh, entire initiative. Um, that funding for the build for the residential was a Commonwealth Government investment. They invested amounts in each state for the building of residential treatment services, but the, they didn't allocate funding for the operational costs of so we were probably slightly at risk of building a thing that didn't have operational funding, but though it, it is great to hear that there is going to be, there was four years of operational cost announced in the in last week's budget for that. So do you just want to explain as well a little bit more about what the residential centre is? Because I'm not sure if everyone is aware of the new residential centre that is going to be built in Victoria and the role that it's going to play in our treatment system. So, yeah, so essentially residential treatment centre is a non-hospital-based home-like setting where people will um, stay generally for an extended period of time, sleep there, um, and it really is, um, uh, it's an in it's I guess it will become one of the most intensive treatment options within our sort of step system of care. Um, the reality is it will serve, you know, out of the hundreds of thousands of people with an eating disorder, uh, the numbers that um, can be accommodated by a residential will be clearly relatively small, but it will be a fantastic option for people who really 
need a really intensive response to their eating disorders. It will be a, um, we've been involved in the design. It will be a, a, a beautiful building. It will be a warm home-like. It has strong consideration for people's sensory needs and preferences. It will offer a range of programs around meal support, around therapeutic groups. And, you know, so I guess it's, uh, it's up in the intensity level of the support. Uh, for someone, and it will be probably used for as a step down in many cases from a hospital admission um, or a step up to avoid hospital admissions. So it'll it'll sit in that level of our um, step system of care. And it will be available to anyone across the state. It, it will be a public. No, no, no. So while the Alfred Alfred Health are responsible for building and running um, the service, um, it will be a statewide service available to people across the state. And the intention with this model of care in particular, each state is doing a slightly different model of care around their residentials, but um, in Victoria we have a very strong value set around um, that it sits within our system of care and is strongly linked. Um, So we're really looking at smooth transfers from people's usual treatment teams, um, strong connection with um, treatment teams, a strong focus on inclusion of families into this, uh, and families and supporters into this service to uh, provide a sort of support and skill building for them as well. So, um, but yeah, it will be a statewide service. So wherever you are in the state, it will be an option. Yeah, I mean, it does sound pretty amazing and it does sound like it's going to become a really integral part of our treatment system for adults in Victoria. But, you know, like you say, it is only going to serve, you know, a very small number of our community. Um, and hence why organisations like EDV will still be really important in terms of guiding people through the entire system of care and making sure people have access to recovery supports at every level. Um, you know, I think sometimes people might think that this is what the only thing that EDV is advocating for, these more intensive services. And while we do see them as really important, you know, most of our advocacy is around investing in better services at a community level because we know, and, you know, this is what the evidence says, that the um, most effective way for people to get better, the most cost-effective way is for people to receive treatment while they're living at home and they are in the community. Yeah, and, you know, we... That part of our work, maybe um, in terms of the Victorian eating disorder strategy, the sorts of um, areas we've been strongly advocating for, and there's too many to enumerate here what we've been advocating for. Um, but yeah, a real focus on how can we up the intensity a little bit while people remain in the community, um, because we we definitely see strong value for people with eating disorders in. Um, remaining connected to friends, to things that create meaning for you, your usual lives um, as much as possible, um, that, you know, while recognising there may be situations where time out from that <laughs> uh, may also serve, um, may serve a strong purpose. But, yeah, the our system of care, what we've been advocating for broadly is every layer of our system needs to respond to eating disorders that we have had a slight tendency to be a bit othered within our broad mental health system uh, as seen as very specialist 
um, and that, you know, the, the complete gamut of all eating disorder diagnoses, all presentations, uh, we should be able to get a response, a good response from GPs, a good response from our private system, a good response from our uh, tier one, uh, tier three, I think they're called, but they're, no, walk-in mental health clinics that are popping up all over the place across the state. They should be able to respond and identify and uh, provide a level of support initially for people with eating disorders. And then they need to, you know, line them up and send them up the, uh, the system as um, as different intense levels different intensities are needed for um, how we support someone and really how we can create a system which is very person-centred about what the person needs rather than just offering a cookie-cutter thing. Um, and if you don't fit that cookie-cutter, well, you know, tough luck. You know, you have to go and find something else. So, um, yeah, it's a, you know, it's been a big piece of our effort and work over the last year is to really be at trying to make sure that this eating disorder strategy reflects um, what our community have told us is needed across the board. Um, yeah, like you say, it's a bit around a year in the making. It's expected to be released in August, hopefully, at this stage. So, yeah, the team here at EDV is still working really closely with the Department of Health and our colleagues at SEED, the Centre of Excellence in Eating Disorders, on continually developing the strategy. So it really does reflect those things that you were saying, Belinda. and. Also shout out to all those people in our community, maybe some of you who are listening now, who have participated in the workshops and the consultations to help inform the strategy. This strategy has been highly driven by lived experience and, you know, the policy people within the Department of Health, they, to their credit, are listening really closely to what the community is saying. So I do hope that people can feel reasonably confident that we're going to end up with a really good strategy by August and hopefully it will lay the foundations for really good investment into the sector in the future. At least we can hope so. Um, you know, and layered upon that is also the general reforms that are happening in the mental health system. So some people might know that we had a Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system. Um, when was it released? Uh, I think March 2021. 2021. I think we're sort of two years into the into the process, and so. that's been another ride of itself. So we, when I when I had you know, my nice little country drive up the mountain with the odd pothole, then we got hit by the massive truck that was COVID in early 20. The Royal Commission, I liken the recommendations and the whole reform process around that as like one massive set of roadworks that I, <laughs> um, that are just in front of us that are, you know, fixing, trying to fix every pothole and issue um, with this mental health load that we're on and um, that has been an interesting ride for us here at EDV as well because there have been extensive consultations, extensive workshops, extensive one-on-one -on -one meetings um, trying to really emphasise that this newly reformed mental health system needs to respond to all eating disorders at all levels of this new reformed system. Yeah. And, you know, this new system promises to be pretty revolutionary in terms of access and pathways and the responses people should get. But we know it's going to take many years for full implementation. It's definitely a long game. But, you know, I also think it's important for people to understand that, you know, this is all the work that goes on in the background of an organisation like EDV. You know, most people just see sort of the front end of service delivery, which is great. But 
that's just one piece of the puzzle. And I know, Belinda, so much of your time is spent doing this advocacy and policy reform work. And it's really important um, because without it, we wouldn't see these changes or improvements in the system. So I hope people can feel assured that there are people working really hard day in, day out at both a state level and a national level to really improve the system of care. So talking about the national level, can we just quickly talk about the federal stuff? Because, you know, I think this week in particular, people may have seen some media around eating disorders. There was this $70 million announcement, which I think is uh, slightly misleading, but I guess that's the way things get spun to um, garner a bit of attention. Can you explain that funding announcement a little bit more? So essentially that announcement was for two buckets of funding. One was $20 million for, um, of federal funding to support, um, I think the term is innovative community models of treatment in eating disorders, something, a version of that wording. Um, and that was a budget announcement in the May 2022 federal budget under the, um, what was under the previous I've got to get my elections right now. But, yes, I think it was under um, it was a Liberal government um, announcement in their, their last budget. Um, and so that was a $20 million uh, bucket of money and there was a whole process that went out for organisations across Australia to put in tenders um, to apply for components of that funding. And so the announcement on Monday really was making public the successful tenderers for that funding. Um, so there was no new money as such. Very welcome announcement, some fantastic projects that have been funded as part of that funding, um, but, yeah, not exactly new money. Um, and then the other 50000 is investment into the... Sorry, 50 million. Uh, oh, 50 million. <laughs> yeah, 50 million um, is into investment into research into early, um, childhood, not early, just childhood mental health. So across the board, which will include eating disorders. So there'll be definitely opportunities for research into eating disorders as part of that research fund, um, but it's not dedicated to eating disorders. No, which I think um, is where the slightly misleading angle came in. I think people thought, wow, amazing, this $50 million for eating disorder research. But no, it's just general mental health research, which is still really important. It's excellent. And hopefully eating disorders gets a nice slice of that pie. Um, so Belinda, what do you think the next 12 months sort of looks like for EDV as much as you can predict at the moment? Um, probably a bit more of the same, really. I think, uh, we absolutely will be, um, looking forward to the launch of the eating disorder strategy and definitely will be, you know, looking at all the components of that and trying to, um, establish, where we may be able to make some arguments for investment for government into work that we do. Um, so there definitely will be components of that. Um, in terms of service delivery, I think we'll continue to deliver the services we have been delivering um, as much as we can. Um, and uh, there may be some slight changes to how they're delivered um, given the funding scenarios, but um, the aim is to continue to I think to the outside world, people won't particularly maybe see that much difference in terms of what we offer. Um, and then I think um, 
the other emphasis that we have been really starting to, once we got our head above the kind of COVID pandemic crisis, is to really, you know, look at how we as an organisation can maybe not be so entirely, not entirely, but heavily reliant on state government funding as a proportion of our overall funding to create some ongoing sustainability um, versus an organisation, maybe not be quite so vulnerable to a change of government at some point. All of those seems a little unlikely at the moment, but um, but yeah, so I think we are really trying to um, uh, invest some of our time um, into time and energy into exploring uh, multiple streams of funding uh, for EDV and growing. So we've no, we've always had multiple streams, but they've been relatively minor, and we've not had a lot of dedicated sort of time and energy to, into growing those. So um, we are seeing that over the next twelve months. That's a that's a focus point for us. And uh, I guess maybe this is a good opportunity to shout out uh, to anyone you know who maybe is connected to businesses or those who maybe want to align with EDV? Yeah. So if, if, if anybody that's listening has any connections, um, we are looking for um, partnerships with corporate uh, partners. Uh, we're looking to increase um, our fundraising. Um, uh, you know, we're looking to, you know, just really having conversations. If, um, we're also um, approaching philanthropy organisations. Um, so we're doing a whole range of different uh, things, but we're really keen to um, explore conversations. So, yeah, just reach out, even if it's half an idea, you know, just reach out and um, we're really keen to have conversations about that stuff at the moment. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I'm really noticing, um, kind of where we're heading and it sort of happened organically, but also with a lot of intention, and that's our real leadership in the lived experience space. So in terms of our peer workforce and, you know, EDV has historically always had a great emphasis on people having lived experience working in this space. But over the past few years in particular, you know, starting with our peer mentoring program and now expanding out to things like our care coaching program, our severe and enduring eating disorder program, our online support groups who are run by um, peer facilitators, that kind of, I guess, level of knowledge and expertise around eating disorders um, and the peer workforce has really become apparent at EDV. And I'm really excited to see where EDV takes this um, as leaders in this field, because we know that it is just a growing workforce and there's more and more demand for peer workers. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's probably been um, um, the hallmark <laughs> of the changes that have occurred over the last four years. Um, you know, 75% of our team have lived experience, whether they're required to use that in their everyday work or not. Um and, you know, I always talk about, you know, that's where the magic happens, um, that we get our community on a very deep level um, and what that brings both to the service delivery arm, where they were using their lived experience in a designated, um, you know, it's a key requirement of the role to use their lived experience but, uh, through to whether the receptionist has lived experience. Um, it all makes... Um, how we respond on all levels to our community just that much more real and connected and pragmatic and um, 
you know, deeply understanding um, of the challenges that they face. And I think, you know, we've worked really hard to set up systems to make this work and this workplace safe to work in. Um, uh, you know, we do this work well. We provide lots of supervision for all of our staff uh, on um, with lived experience and the rest of the staff. Um, my, I keep saying if we do it well for lived experience staff, uh, we do it well for all staff. Um, so I think we, you know, I think we are leaders and we're respected within our sector as leaders in this space. You know, we've got research that we've been able to do on our peer mentoring program. It clearly um, shows um, that the uh, over the six-month relationship, the average um, scores for eating disorder behaviours and symptoms and depression and anxiety scales go down significantly um, and the there's a reduction in hospital admission rates from pre-program to post-program. So uh, we're starting in the very early phases of getting research that shows what we do matters and is making a difference. Um, and that's another whole bit of effort. That's not effort that gets funded. <laughs> so so um, there's lots of these things that happen in the background, as Rhee talks about, that are crucial to telling the story about what we do, uh, the value of what we do. Um, and I think... Um, I think we very much have been on the front foot or the, you know, the vanguard, whatever the right metaphor is uh, in terms of the uh, the lived experience space. Yeah, it really is amazing. And I'm looking forward to some of our team presenting on some of this stuff at the um, big ANZEG conference later in the year in August. Um, so finally, Belinda, and, you know, I think you kind of touched on it here with the peer workforce, but I know a lot of people listening may feel quite passionate about this space and, you know, might be thinking of ways that they can use their lived experience to either support EDV or eating disorders in general. Maybe they want to have a career in lived experience work at some point. So what advice would you give to anyone listening on this particular topic? I mean, as someone who's done that, um, you know, it's it's a, a continual privilege to be able to wake up every morning and feel I'm I've turned what was actually probably the worst experience of our family's um, life um, into something that hopefully is making a difference um, out there. So, uh, and what I've always said for me personally, that's been healing, that healed that space. It's not for probably most people. I reckon most people go on this journey, um, you yourself recover or your family member recovers and quite rightly everybody returns back to normal lives and normal transmission and um, their, you know, their way of healing is to, uh, to embrace that new life. And that's my daughter's way of healing. My daughter, you know, living her best life um, and it has nothing to do with eating disorder, advocacy or any of that sort of stuff. Um, that is healing for her. But healing for a small proportion of us is about turning a, um, a traumatic or a difficult experience into something meaningful that can make a difference to other people. So um, if you fall into that category, um, the things I would say, um, so if, if it's your own personal lived experience and you would like to be able to use that to encourage others, to be able to tell your story, to make a difference, advocate, any of those things, um, First thing is is the emphasis on your own recovery and making sure that is solid and strong. Um, it's so important that this 
advocacy work and this meaningful work will always be there. But you have to get to the place where um, you are able to be your best self and your strongest self in this work. Um, so for most of our roles here, we um, we are looking for sort of a two-year-ish period from um, when you last really experienced sort of behaviours and symptoms and thoughts. Know we know some thoughts pop up occasionally um, and may do for many years, so um, that's not such a hard line thing. Um, but, you know, it it can be difficult work. There can be difficult conversations that pop up um, in conversations and settings in this that um, can create some challenges. So we really are looking for people to look after yourself first and really focus in on that recovery so you can be your best self if this is the type of work you want to be do later. Um, then I think um, it's it's about doing it through organisations like ours, like Butterfly, you know, um, where we can provide you with the skills to do this work safely. Um, training, we provide a lot of training. We do safe storytelling uh, training um, so that we can hold and support and you know, debrief and um, uh, help you do that work. Uh, we've got, um, there's also massive, well not massive, maybe that's overstating this, a lot of roles turning up within our board of public mental health system and our eating disorder services that are lived experience roles. Um, and we are holding two uh, webinars later in June, um, which um, the information will be on our website or maybe Bree yeah. will give you more information. I'll put, I'll put the links <laughs> in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you're interested in getting involved in work that, that leverages your lived experience um, and um, that you want to play a role in either treatment system, EDV, um, in the advocacy space, et cetera, um, uh, come and learn about that in those webinars. Perfect. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, even if your lived experience doesn't necessarily translate into you becoming a lived experience worker or a peer worker or anything like that, um, Advocacy can still take place on a much smaller level, whether that's just talking about eating disorders, normalising eating disorders. Talking about organisations like EDV is really helpful to help spread the word and make sure more people are accessing our kind of services. If you want to take it even further, you could write to your local MP, whether that be state or federal, and you know ask what they're going to do about eating disorders. Where is their investment going? So yeah, there's all different levels of ways you can advocate and be involved. And to give one more plug for EDV, another really important way to support this work is to donate. We we talk about paying what it takes to do this work. And, you know, almost all of the things that we have spoken about today with Belinda have not been about our service delivery. That it's been all about the things that happen in the background to make this operation run and to influence change in the sector. And generally that work is not funded by government. So we do have to draw on any, you know, other sorts of funds that we have to make that stuff happen. And that is why donations are so key for us. So at the moment we are running an end of financial year fundraising campaign. I will also link that in the show notes. And we are trying to raise $40,000 to celebrate 40 years of eating disorders, Victoria. So no amount is too small. Uh, to donate. If you would like to donate, you can do so very easily online. We have things like Apple Pay and Google Pay now. 
which make it very simple. And um, yeah, all donations over $2 are tax deductible, which is great. Excellent. Yes, please do. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Belinda, I know that we've actually gone over time for our meeting and I know you have a jam-packed day. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to our community today. And we hope to get you back on another episode of Candid Conversation soon. Fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded, the Boon Wurrung and Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging.